Okay, so um, this afternoon we are going to be studying from the book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. Uh, I've entitled this sermon, God's Everlasting Love. I cheated a little bit because it's the heading in my Bible for this section of, the, of Scripture, but it does sum it up perfectly, what we'll be looking at today. Um, it is a wonderful passage of Scripture and a wonderful chapter of Scripture. Um, such an encouraging uh, chapter for, uh, written by Paul, and I would encourage you to go and separately meditate on this chapter in your, in your free time. It is a wonderful encouragement, and especially the verses we're going to be looking at today, verses 31 to 39. Um, I think these verses should bring immense comfort to the believer. Um, they essentially encourage us to no matter what we face in this life and in the world, that God is ultimately greater than those things and that nothing will separate us from his love. So that's what we're going to look at today. And if I just start by, um, by reading, reading the passage we're looking at. So Romans 8, 31 to 39. <clears throat> what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, just, I do thank you for this wonderful passage of scripture that we're studying today, Lord. I thank you that you inspired Paul to write these words. And we just thank you for the wonderful truths that are contained within them, Lord. And I just pray that during our time here now, that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work, Lord, that everyone listening would have ears to hear and hearts open to receive your word, Lord. And I just pray that you would speak to everyone individually through your word and that we would all Leave encouraged, challenged, and blessed by spending time in your scriptures, Lord. So just bless this time today in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so you'll see at the start of verse 31, he's, uh, Paul starts with a question, which is, what then shall we say to these things? Obviously, I think it's wise to actually have a look at what you know, he's saying these things. It's worth look, having a look at what these things are that he's referring to. So I just wanted to go back a few verses and read verses 28 to 30 as well, which gives us a bit more context of what he's talking about. So it says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, he, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. 
I know there's about three or four sermons worth of, uh, of content in those three verses alone, and it's not my intention to sort of look at those passages in particular, but I did just want to draw a couple of key points out of them in the context of what we're looking at today. And those points really was that, you know, God works all things for good to those who love him, and that he has called us to be his and to dwell with him for all eternity. And so what I want to do really is, after that question Paul wrote in verse 31, there's another one straight after, which is, if God is for us, who can be against us? And what I want to start with at the start of our study here is to sort of build up an answer to that question. Um, and it's an easy answer really, but I just want to sort of look at the context behind it. And so we've looked at verses 28 to 30 in those couple of points I've just looked at there. And I also think it's important to jump ahead a little bit and just look at the first part of verse 32. There he says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. You know, and I think for, for believers, it's quite easy for us, it's, it's kind of danger for us to get quite complacent about that message. Not purposefully, not because we don't care. You know, we all understand you know, that God sent his son to the cross to die for our sins, to give us everlasting life and forgiveness of our sins. We all know that. But we can sort of, lose sense of the gravity of what that truly means and you know when I was reading this I was thinking you know for those of us who have our own children you know imagine the situation where someone came along and said right you have to you know we'd do anything to protect our children and keep them from harm and you know someone came along and said right you're going to have to sacrifice the lives of your children you know it's and sacrifice for people who hate you it's like yeah. it's an unthinkable scenario but that's exactly what God did for us you know, it's, uh, and I just think we should be dwelling on that and really meditating on that truth more um, and letting that live out in our lives more. You know, in Romans 5, 8, Paul wrote slightly earlier in this letter that God demonstrates his own love towards us that in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And again, such a, a verse we all know so well, it's quite easy to just not miss, but not really comprehend the truth of it and... You know, God not only sent his only begotten son, who he dwelt with from eternity past, to the cross, to die for our sins, but he also suffered greatly going to the cross. You know, he, he took the whole wrath of God for the sin of mankind on his shoulders while he was up on that cross. And it's for people who are his enemies, and enemies of God. And it's just such a sobering truth and just something that we really need to just to always dwell on and and. You know, keep in mind that, you know, we hated God and he sent his son to give us life and hope. It's just such a, such a sobering truth to, to meditate on. And so with that in context of the, our question, before we do come back to the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? You know, so far we've looked at God loves us so much, he sacrificed the life of his only begotten son to give us life. In whatever circumstance we find ourselves in God uses those circumstances for our good for those who love him and God has called us and chosen us to be his children to spend eternity with him and in Ephesians 1 4 it says that was before the foundation of the world he chose us and called us to be his and there's just one more thing I wanted to add to the mix in terms of answering this question and that's thinking about who God is himself you know we're talking about the all-powerful creator of the universe here I mean I'm not going to ask you to go to Back to Genesis now, but, you know, in the Genesis account, in Genesis 1, God only had to speak and all things came to exist. 
Yeah. You only have to read the start of each day in the creation account. It says, then God said, and then it goes on to describe what he called into existence. You know, it didn't say, you know, God got up, he toiled and sweated, he struggled a bit, but he got there in the end, or, you know, or he, had a, he had a day off, he was a bit tired when he got up on day four. So, he, you know, it literally says God spoke, and those things came into existence. That's, that's the power of the God who is for us, you know? And it's the same God that John, when he writes, when he's writing of the new heaven and earth in Revelation, in Revelation 21, 22, when he's writing of the new Jerusalem, said the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. You know, such is his power that he spoke everything into his existence and such is his glory that it's going to light the entirety of heaven. You know, and just to recap, to be a bit repetitive, so to cover what we've looked at so far, God, such is his love for us, he sent his son to die for us. Such is his love for us that he works all things to our good. Such is his love for us that he's called us to spend eternity with him in glory. And his power and his glory are you know, on, beyond any comprehension, really. And, you know, with those points in mind, if we go back and look at the question in verse 31, if God is for us, you know, the God that, you know, what he has done for us, what he is doing for us, and who he is, if that God is for us, then who can be against us? I think there's not an easier question in the world to answer, I would say. You know, it's nobody. Nobody can possibly be against us if we have God for us. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be many people or things that um, in this world that will try and come against us, obviously and do, our, do their best to draw us away from God's love and from our relationship with him. But, you know, if we do truly trust in him, seek him first in all circumstances, in all our trials, then there isn't anything that can come against us in this life that we cannot endure through the love and through the power of God, you know, the power of God that dwells within us. Um, you need to remember that God's Power isn't just something that God will send forth, you know, as and when we need it. Oh, Reese is having a bit of a tough day. Let's send him some of my power today to get him through. You know, as as you may recall, Kevin teaching so excellently in Resurrection Sunday, the power of God dwells within each of us if we're believers in Christ through the Holy Spirit. That power, the power we just spoke about, that spoke the world into existence, that same power, that same Holy Spirit dwells in us. You know, so if we are entering each day seeking to walk in the Spirit, then we're entering each day walking in with God's power, working through us. Um, what an amazing truth that is. And, you know, so as Paul wrote, you know, Paul writes, God is for us. You know, I don't, like, I don't want to criticize Paul, but it's a, bit, it's, a bit, it's a bit more than he's just for us. He is literally with us and in us in every moment of our day and of our lives. You know, and it's up to us to surrender our lives to him and allow that power to guide us and lead us through our lives. So then coming on to the second, the second half of verse 32, we see another question. Paul, uh, Paul, quite a few questions through this passage we're looking at. Another question is, how shall he, not with him, also freely give us all things? And I think it's quite a logical question, really. You know, why would God who after sacrificing his son for us, for calling us to be his children out of darkness and into his love, then not want to bless us and continue to show his love towards us. You know, I think, you know, given the gift of salvation and eternal life that 
Kevin just spoken about during the communion message there. You know, even if God didn't do another single thing for us in this life, I don't, we couldn't have any complaints, you know. <laughs> Our salvation is enough, and that should sustain us. But we know that God is love, and we know that by his very nature, he wants to bless and love those that he's called. Um, but I just want to address this question a little bit as well, because we also know there's a lot of dangerous false teachings out there, and I think... You know, for the, you know, we want to misinterpret and take scripture out of context. And I think for some, some people reading, you know, reading this question and, and seeing God will freely give us all things. I mean, the sort of health and wealth prosperity teacher there is eyes light up all things freely. You know, fantastic. I'll be preaching on that one. But um, you know, Paul's not saying that God is some genie we call upon to, to bless us with all our heart's desires whatever we want, because ultimately our own heart's desires are sinful and, <laughs> and of the flesh. And that's not what God is going to bless us with. But we need to remember in the scripture, the commandment that we are commanded when we do turn to God, and that's to walk, uh, to ask what we do ask for in accordance with his will. And in 1 John 5, 14 and 15, it is written that, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Now, I know you could ask, well, how do we pray according to God's will? You know, how could we ever comprehend the mind of God and understand what his will is? Um, but I think it's quite simple, really. You know, his will for the entirety of mankind and his will for each of us individually as his children is written in his word. His word tells us his will for us, you know. So for us to understand his will, we need to study his word and have it written on our hearts. And that's why it's so important to study the word of God. And even if we do that and we know his word, we will know how to pray and we will know what to pray and what will be in accordance with his will. But I think it's also worth noting that God may not always answer our prayers in the way that we may hope or may expect, even if they are in accordance with his will. You know, in Isaiah, I would say that doesn't mean he's not listening or not answering. In Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your way, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, we have an infinitely wise and all-knowing God, and he will work in our lives in, way, in ways that we just can't see, can't comprehend, and can't expect. You know, we may pray for something and hope to get an answer the next day or the same day or within the, the coming weeks, but we may not see an answer to that prayer for months or years ahead. We may never see the answer to the prayer, but it doesn't mean he hasn't been working and it doesn't mean he hasn't answered that prayer. But whatever the outcome, we know one thing for sure, if he is working and responding to that prayer, it will be for our good and for his glory. And then moving on to verse 33 and verse 34 together, in sort of keeping with the theme of asking questions, as Paul's doing here, he asks a couple more. He says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect, and who is he who condemns? Now, the word charge that we read here is the Greek word enkaleo, which means to bring a charge or an accusation against someone, to accuse some, someone of, done, of doing something wrong. And the word condemn in the second question is the Greek word katakrino, 
which is to bring a judgment or pass a sentence against someone for a crime that they may have committed. So it's about being accused of doing things wrong and, and, and committing crimes, uh, ultimately. And, you know, the manner of Paul's questions and the answers he gives, which we will look at, you know, the answers are you know, nobody, no man, in terms of the believer. Who can bring a charge against the believer? No one. Ultimately, we answer to God, not to man. But at the same time, you know, just because we do answer to God and not to man, does that mean we can just disobey man, disobey the laws of man, just do as we wish, just because we only answer to God? I would say no, of course not. In fact, Scripture commands us, and I know it's a challenging one, but Scripture does command us to be obedient to those placed in authority. And in Romans 13, 1 and 2, Paul writes to let every soul be subject to governing the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Now, these are, in the world we live in, very challenging and difficult uh, verses. I accept that, and I struggle with them myself sometimes. You see all the evil and corruption in the world around, and especially those who lead our country and countries and nations around the world. And sometimes you think, you know, did, did God really appoint them? <laughs> you know? Does God really want them in charge with some of the things they're saying and doing and laws they're passing? But, you know, as we look back in Isaiah, this is in Isaiah earlier, we, he is infinitely wise and knowledgeable and we're not. And we have to trust him in those things and trust his will and trust that his plans are, are perfect. But there's also another important thing to consider here is, as with some examples we will look at now from scripture and from our own society and culture we're in, that where man's law does require us to disobey God or, or to sin, then ultimately it is God's law and God's word that supersedes, and it is, that is what we ultimately are to obey. Um, and you know, we can see examples in, in scripture where men do try and bring a charge against God's elect and try and uh, accuse us of crimes and accuse us of wrong. Um, I've been studying the book of Daniel recently, and there's a couple of examples in there which you all probably know particularly well in this book alone where we see this. You know, the first one you see is King Nebuchadnezzar when he brings a charge against Daniel's friends, against um, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, as their Hebrew names are for not worshipping the golden statue, the golden idol that he sets up. You know, he threatens, he says, if you don't, then, you know, I'll be throwing you in a, in a hot, fiery furnace. And, you know, and as we know, they didn't, because that would be an act of disobedience against God. You know, God's law superseded what the king was telling them to do. In obedience, they weren't going to worship a false idol, they were going to worship the true and living God. And the result of that, which they knew full well, is they were going to get thrown in that fiery furnace and... And we know that in the furnace, when they were in there, they were protected, divinely protected by God. And you know, the angel of the Lord appeared with them in there, which I believe is a pre-incarnate Jesus. And, and they came out unscathed, and not a, not a hair on their head was uh, singed through God's protection. Um, and we also see in the book of Daniel, the old Sunday school favorite of Daniel being thrown into the den of lions. But, you know, he continued to pray to God when the laws of the land were changed to say you can only pray and worship to the king. And he, that law was put down, and the first thing he'd done immediately was go back to his house, go to his window in the, in the open 
public space where everyone could see him and started praying to God, the true God, and knowing full well that um, some hungry lions would be awaiting for him in that, in that den. But again, as we know, God's divine protection came, came to him. But you know, the important point was they just they remained obedient to God no matter what, what they were facing as a result of doing so. And I mean, actually, Daniel's case that we read is quite similar to some things we see in our own society today. You know, recently we've seen you know, there's Christians arrested outside abortion clinics for peaceful, silent prayer, praying in their own minds to God, and they're getting arrested for it. It's crazy. And, you know, you see in pastors and street preachers and Christians losing their jobs and getting arrested for, you know, referring to people by the biological God-given genders. That's, that's the society we live in at the moment. And just generally in our culture, we're seeing Christians increasingly being accused of wrongs and crimes and of being unloving and hateful and bigoted just for standing up for God's biblical truths, you know, when quite the opposite, you know, is the case. You know, we, the opposite of unloving, the opposite of hateful. We're called to love everybody, you know, and show everyone God's love just because we don't agree with their sin and what they're doing doesn't mean we don't love them and don't care for them and pray for their salvation. I know it's tough and, you know, these things can sound quite worrying that that's the world we face and the world we live in. But Paul reminds us here in this verse, you know, we aren't to fear what men think of us, you know, because it is God who justifies. That's what Paul writes, it's God who justifies. Men, might try, men may try and condemn us and bring charges against us, but when they do, and they will, I would encourage you, to um, meditate on the truths at the start of this chapter that we're looking at today in Romans 8, verse 1. It reads, there, you know, when men try and condemn us, read these words. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You know, men may try and condemn us, may try and bring a charge against us and make us out to be guilty, but, you know, ultimately... Our guilt has been paid for. We aren't guilty in the eyes of the Lord, and that's what matters. Um, but just on the finishing off this point, just because we aren't to fear man and to ultimately obey God, it certainly doesn't mean we aren't to care about what men think of us. You know, our witness and how we and how we interact with the world and what we say to others and how we show love is so important. It's a it's a massive part of our testimony. In John 13, 35, Jesus said, and all will know that, you're, that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that's what we're to do. We're to walk the walk, so to speak. You know, We're proclaiming and preaching a faith that's founded on love, love for God and love for others. You know, We walk around with our Calvary Chapel t-shirts on and it's on the back. Um, you know, and how hypocritical if we walk, you know, walk around with those T-shirts on and then we go showing an unloving attitude to others. You know, it's a massive part of our testimony to show that love, our love for God and our love for others. And that's what draws people to Christ. Ultimately, we're, otherwise, we're hypocrites and there's nothing that's going to put people off coming to church and hearing what we have to say about Jesus and his love than, than being hypocrit hypocritical and unloving. So it's a massive part of our testimony and a massive part of our evangelism, just in how we act and interact with the world. Um, and then in Paul, still in, in these verses, Paul tells us another comfort in truth, that Christ makes intercession for us. So we have the whole Trinity on our side. 
We've got God who justifies us. We've got Christ who intercedes on our behalf. He intercedes on our behalf on the cross for our sin. And he intercedes on our behalf now sat at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And then we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us as well, giving us that power that we've talked about earlier, the power that enables us to live a life that God has called us to live. You know, when we truly dwell on those things, you know, there isn't anything that should cause us to fear what this world or what man can bring against us or any charge that anyone can bring against us ultimately when we have God on our side. And then moving on to verses 35 and 36. There's the question, Paul starts with another question at the start of verse 35. He asks, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now I'm going to sort of park that question and pick up on it a bit later because I think that's perfectly answered in the final two verses, verse 38 and 39. So I'll come back to that as part of our final part of our study. But following on what we just talked about, about what, you know, the challenges and trials we can face in this world, you know, we see see some challenging things that Paul writes here in verse 35. He says, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, the sword. You know, as when I was reading these words, it reminds me of um, something we studied quite recently in, in Hebrews. You may recall towards the end of chapter 11 of Hebrews in the Hall of Faith that um, the author of Hebrews writes about some of the trials that the saints had to had to persevere. And I ask you to turn there, if you can, in Hebrews chapter 11. Um, if you don't know where Hebrews is by now, then I don't know where you've been for the last year. So I, I hope you can, uh, you can turn there. So Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35 to 38. It says, Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered, around, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. I mean, no. Praise God that we, well, especially here in our Western world, we don't face many of the trials yet that that are written of there in Hebrews or that Paul writes of in our passage we're looking at in Romans 8. But we still do face persecution. We still do face mocking for our faith. We'll still face many trials caused by the sin and wickedness of others and even by our own fallen nature. Um, Yet through all these things, I think we... uh, Our aim should be what we can see then in the following verse, in verse 39 of Hebrews 11, which is to obtain a good testimony through faith. You know, I don't think there's any any better testimony of our faith than than to persevere through trials and seek the Lord through those trials. You know, and to display a calmness and a peace in those trials, a peace that Scripture says that surpasses all understanding. And to the world, it does surpass all understanding. You know, in times when we face trials and troubles that to those who don't know Christ, the sort of natural instinct will be stress or anxiety or anger. You know, when we, when we going through the same things can show a calmness and a peace and a trust in the Lord, then that can be a really powerful witness of the life-changing power of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us. It, it takes it from just being words in a book and, 
that's just preaching words that people may or may not want to listen to or believe to being life-changing. It shows people that this, the word of God is living and powerful and it can transform and does transform lives. And then moving on as we're coming quite close to the end, now in verse 37 of Romans 8. It says, Yet in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And when I read the word conquer, it kind of made me think back to, um, to my school days and some of the historic William the Conqueror, yes, some of the historic characters who've led mighty armies to victories, you know, these mighty conquering men. And, um, you know, no matter how mighty a warrior or how successful a conqueror someone, someone can be, you know, through the blood of Christ, we have conquered something that no man can ever otherwise conquer, and that's conquering death. No, other conquer, no one can conquer that apart from through Christ. In Romans 6.23, we read that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know, all men are sentenced to death for their sin. There's not one that escapes that. You know, from the day we're born, we're sinful, and we have to pay the price for that sin. You know, but thanks to Christ conquering death and his victory over, grave, over the grave when he died and rose again, we have conquered death and we share in his victory. And as Paul writes at the end of this verse, we are conquerors through him. You know, and what a wonderful, glorious truth that is. That we have too have conquered death through, through Christ and through our faith and trust in him. And so then moving on to the verses 38 and 39. Now I said earlier that the question Paul wrote in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Well, let's read what you know, Paul writes here. He says, For that I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, it's, I suppose it's a pretty comprehensive list that Paul's written there. Um, I tried to think, think of, come up with something that you might have missed out, but I, I was struggling, I'll be honest. Um, you know, and I'm not planning to go through each one of those sort of individual things there, but, you know, the overall point that Paul is trying to get across there, and the overall answer, again, it's another pretty straightforward answer, really. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Well, nobody and nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. I mean, you know, Sadly, there are many who are separated from the love of Christ. Um, you know, I don't think God wants anyone to be separated from his love and from the love of Christ, but many are. You know, God sent Jesus to die for all men's sins, for all men. You know, we read earlier, and I'll read it again in Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love towards us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we can also read in 2 Peter 3, 9 that the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And I know the sad reality is, is that, that that's not the case. You know, many will choose to, re to reject him and choose a life of sin, and unwilling or unable to give up their sinful lifestyles, sinful activities, or be able to humble themselves to acknowledge that they are sinners, that they need of salvation, and that Christ is the only way to salvation. You know, these verses tell me that God loves and wants all men to be reconciled to him. And I would say to anyone here today who 
who hasn't accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior and isn't reconciled to the Father and received his love, that now is the time to do that. As uh, Pastor Kevin said earlier in our communion message, today is the day of salvation. Don't pass up that chance. Don't let another day go by without without coming to repentance and coming to know the life-changing power of Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And in verse 39, it says that we receive the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So in other words, when we do accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, not only do we receive the forgiveness of God for our sins, but we also receive the love of God. We accept his love into our lives. It's available for all and we accept it into our lives at that point. And we also know that when we come to salvation, we receive the Holy Spirit into our hearts and he indwells within us. And Paul, a bit earlier in Romans, puts these two things together. He says, the love of God has been poured into our, in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So, so now that we do have faith through Jesus and now that we've received the Holy Spirit, we can truly know and understand the love of God that wasn't possible to do so before. And I just wanted to, you know, it's like a logical thing we can put together here. So we're told that we receive the love of God through Christ when we come to save in faith. And we're told in verses 38 and 39 that nothing can separate us from, the, from that love. So if we receive that love when we come to salvation and nothing can separate us from that love, then the logical conclusion is nothing can take our salvation from us. We cannot lose our salvation if we have truly come to save in faith. You know, and Pastor Kevin, as we've been going through Hebrews, there's been a few challenging uh, passages in Hebrews, in particular chapter 6 and chapter 10, that... Um, that many like to use to try and misinterpret and argue that Christians can lose their salvation. It is possible to lose their salvation, but that's not what those verses say. You know, as we've been taught, the author there is re referring to those who do have heard the gospel, have heard God's word being taught. They have attended church. They've you know, fellowshiped with believers. They've seen the Holy Spirit at work in others, but yet they still haven't received and confessed Jesus as their Lord. Those are the people that those verses are referring to, and that's the stark warning that it's giving, is that there is no other way to receive God's love. There's no other way to be reconciled than through Christ, and if they reject him, there is no way back. But I think Scripture is pretty clear that the true believer can't lose their salvation. And one verse I want to uh, read is Ephesians 1, verses 13 to 14. It says, In him, which is Jesus, you, you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. You know, by receiving the Holy Spirit on salvation, we're told there we are sealed and guaranteed by God. I mean... You know, if you think of it, every word in this Bible is divinely inspired by God. It's not Paul telling us these things. Paul inspired, uh, no, God inspired Paul to write these words. They are God's words. You know, so if God is telling us that he's sealing and guaranteeing our salvation, then I, for one, am going to believe that. And, you know, who could, if God, if that's God sealing us and guaranteeing us, as we looked at earlier, who could possibly take that away from us? Who could be against us if, if God has provided that to us? And so just to finish up, I've, got, I've put on the slide behind me, just like I've done a little few bullet point summary of some of the things we've looked at today. 
Um, I'll, I'll just quickly go through them. So, you know, we've, we've looked at how God works all things for good for those who love and trust him, all things for good, even if it doesn't necessarily feel like it at the time for us. That is what he's doing. You know, he's called us to be his children and to dwell with him for eternity in glory. You know, if God is with us, then nobody and nothing can be against us. You know, God will give us all things we ask for if we ask in accordance with his will. You know, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing and no man and nothing whatsoever can separate us. And finally, that our salvation is secure in him. You know, there's some glorious truths there. And, you know, I'm not making these things up. They all come from scripture. And you can read them again for yourself. But... And I just wanted to finish with those points in mind. I just wanted to finish by looking at what I believe is one of the most comforting and wonderful uh, passages of Scripture that a believer in Jesus Christ can ever read. And I want you to consider these points in mind um, when you consider the words I'm about to read regarding God and his love and our security in him. And that's in, in John 10, verses 27 to 30, if you'd like to turn there to finish. We'll turn to John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30. I haven't got it on the screen, so you can turn in your Bibles or just listen to it being read. But these are wonderful, comforting words of Scripture, and these are Jesus' words. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. It's just wonderful words from our Lord and Saviour, and words that I would encourage you to dwell on in this coming days and week. Um, and just and bear those points in mind, ultimately, that our salvation is secure in the love of God, the God that we love and serve. And I'm just going to pray now. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your love. Your love, such love that you sent your son to die on the cross for us, Lord, to suffer and die so that we don't have to suffer and die, Lord, so that we can dwell with you for eternity. Such is your love for us, Lord, that no one can snatch us out of your hand. Nobody and no, nothing can come against us, Lord. There's no words to, to thank you enough for the security of our salvation, Lord, and that knowing that we've come to you and nothing can snatch you out of our hands and we have that promise that we will dwell with you for eternity in glory, Lord. We don't have to concern ourselves that we may lose that lord if we're not good enough if we're not worthy enough and none of us are good enough or worthy enough lord accept your son and through him we have those wonderful truths that should encourage us and just uh, even those trials that we've talked about today lord that you'll just get us through those things knowing that you are with us and if you are for us nothing and no one can be against us we thank you for this time now lord we just look forward to worshiping you with a final worship song lord and Lift your name on high as it deserves to be, as it deserves to be lifted, Lord, and just to sing of the blessed assurance that we have in you. We give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.